And that's Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. That's uh, page 1007 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. As I told you last week, one of the most soul-strengthening passages of Scripture in all of Scripture for me is this particular section of scripture. I hope it was for you. I hope that even as you came this morning that you brought some of those passages with you. If fear began to rise up in your heart because of drawing near to a holy God, I pray that some of those passages, and as I close this morning, I'm going to tell you that's a daily experience for me. Not necessarily these passages, but others as well. And I think it's the norm of what it is to walk with God, trusting his promises. But before we go to Hebrews chapter 10, and I want to get there, I want to take you to another passage of Scripture. I want you to turn with me. If you have your Bibles, if not, just listen carefully to two verses in Romans chapter 10. Listen carefully to Paul. He is presenting the gospel here, and he comes to chapter 10. He begins to talk about his own people, the Jewish people. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he called himself, and on the Damascus Road was encountered by Christ. But he's thinking about his kinsmen, the Jewish people, and he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Those are chilling words for a pastor. They're chilling words for me in my ministry. Because it says here, you can have a zeal for God and be lost. In other words, um, zeal doesn't in itself save anybody. And in fact, as a pastor, I'm keenly aware that I can stir up a passion in people which won't do them any good. Passionness is not good enough. Now, in our culture today, we have this whole idea that sincerity is the issue. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter. Just get on a road and get there. Get there to God. That's not what Christianity teaches. In fact, here it's evident. It doesn't talk about that the issue is zeal. In fact, if you look at this text, you, you, you begin to see that it isn't that zeal is bad. I believe in zeal. I believe in passion. I hope you passionately worship this morning, which is a synonym for zeal. 
In fact, I hope you didn't just have a deadness in your soul as you sang some of the truths that you sang. And if you felt some deadness, that you repented of that deadness. You shouldn't feel that deadness in light of the truth. So passion is not wrong. But in this text, there is a passion that gets us in trouble. And in this text of chapter 10, it says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge. That's a key text there. A key part of those two verses. And so I say that, I say all of that to tell you that Hebrews and why Hebrews is because it's about the knowledge. In fact, I have a, I have a premise and I think it's a biblical premise that the deepest and most passionate passion is fueled by that knowledge. Not knowledge in itself, but that truth that I think the deepest kinds of passion come from a heart that has been humbled by a truth like that because knowledge can puff up. But if it doesn't puff us up but causes a humility about us, it can be a deep and should be a deep passion and zeal for God. I remember... I remember a number of years ago, there was a, there was a youth pastor in our denomination who, who uh, everybody knew his name. He was the premier youth pastor of all youth pastors in our denomination and had a large group of young people following him, but he made a chilling statement one time that I think is incredibly dangerous. And, and there are people who, who can do this, and I don't fault him for... God giving him gifts of oratory that can do this, but if you use it in the wrong way, it's deadly. And his statement was, as a charismatic youth person, he boasted that he could, he had the ability to work a crowd. And he did. He could work a crowd. He had the raw ability to work a crowd. He had the raw ability to stir up a passion. Stir up a zeal. In some ways, get people to walk off a cliff after him. But if it's not according to knowledge, truth, Hebrews 10, the gospel, that's incredibly dangerous. And I do think it happens. And I want to stay clear of that. I want to be careful. That's why Hebrews. That's why Hebrews for me to come to you with it. That's why we've been plodding through Hebrews. And we continue to go through it. We continue now at chapter 10, which really kind of beginning to bring us to the climax. The reason why our banner says what it says, holy, 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 let us draw near. It's, it's starting to now directly tell us to do that after it's laid a strong foundation of knowledge underneath it of why we can do that. And it goes on to just hammer it some more in Hebrews chapter 10. You see, I told you last week, I'm a door checker. I'm a door checker by nature. I worked in that grocery store as a young person, and it wasn't good enough for somebody to come tell me the door was locked. I had to go take the door, the back door, and shake it to make sure it was locked, and sometimes more than once, even after I'd checked it. That's my personality. That's the way God has wired me, and sometimes I see that as a curse, but in this case, it's not a curse. I don't want somebody telling me, I don't want somebody just telling me that I can draw near. Just say, draw near. And maybe put 
God in the sentence or Jesus in the sentence and say, draw near because of Jesus. That's not good enough for me. It's never been good enough for me. I want to know why Jesus makes a difference. Why I can draw close to the Holy God. And there is no book better than Hebrews that tells you why. That puts knowledge under any kind of zeal. And lets knowledge be the basis of the zeal. Which I think is biblical Christianity. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at at that in the text. So turn back to me now to Hebrews chapter 10. And look at the text we've just read. In the heart of that text, verse 22, it says this to us. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, we're to draw near. What are we to draw near to? Earlier it says, we have confidence to enter the holy place. So what it's saying is, God is holy, holy, holy. Draw near. Draw near. Because there's two words in this text that give us the reasons why. There's two portions of this text that are connecting portions. First of all, you see the word in verse um, 19 that says, therefore. And a little later in that passage in verse 21, you come to the word that says, since. And so I want to talk to you this morning. I want to lay a foundation of knowledge again underneath you. And then I want to bid you draw near with a full assurance of faith based on that understanding that Hebrews lays out for us. I don't want it to be an experience of fear for you. And maybe it's been an experience of fear, so you come even into a service like this, and, and like I said, there, there, there are three different groups of people. There are people who draw near, and it's terrifying. There are people who draw near, and it's thrilling. And there are people who come and maybe give the guys they're drawing near, but their mind is a thousand miles away from what we're doing here because they don't want to get close because maybe at other times they have tried to draw near and they don't like what happens inside of them. I don't want that to be the case. I, I want you to know the thrill of being able to draw near to a holy God. That's what my hope is this morning. And so I want to talk about, I want to talk about what the writer of Hebrews talks about, how we can draw near so that it fuels a zeal within us. Now let me talk about some ways in which, um, some ways in which people do it, um, examples of how they do it with a zeal that is not according to knowledge first. I mean, there he is again, a zeal not according to knowledge. People look zealous for God and, and they, they appear to be zealously drawing close to God, but it's not according to knowledge. And, and this is some of the stuff that goes into that. One is um, they tend to minimize his holiness. They've, they've, they've heard enough or, or, or heard people talk or whatever, and they, this whole Old Testament, New Testament dichotomy, they bought into that. that. That, well, I really like this God of the New Testament, but I don't know about the God of the Old Testament. They bought the kind of idea, whether they intentionally buy it or not, they live in the reality that that's one God back there. And there's another God in the New Testament who's much softer and gentler. And I like that God, but I don't like the other one. I'm here to tell you that's drawing near 
without knowledge. There are not two gods. There is one God. One God. In three persons, but one God. And the God of the Old Testament, God the Father, is the same as God the Son, who is the same as God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, the Trinity, but one God. One does not have a part of God and the other has another part of God. They are the same God. And so if you've bought into a mentality that there's an Old Testament kind of tough God and a New Testament easier God mentality so that you have, you have kind of minimized the holiness of God, then you are truly not drawing near to the holiness of God. You're drawing near to a caricature of God that you've bought into. This text says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. The presence of this God. That's one way they do it. And, and, and manifestations of that are multiple. They tend to do it on the basis of their own moralism, on their own ability to, to live better than somebody else. And so they, they rate on a scale and think, well, I don't do this or I do this or whatever. So they tend to kind of bring their own performance thinking, well, God, you know, the old, God, God of the Old Testament is pretty tough, but the God of the New Testament is a little more forgiving and understanding. And so they kind of moralistically come based on them, blatantly based on them. Now, not everybody does that. There's some who do, and some people kind of couch it a bit, even though they do do that. But there's, a, there's kind of a, another step in that, and that's the group of people who draw near without knowledge, who, who say, yeah, we need Jesus. I mean, I believe in him. He's my Savior, but I need to add things to it. It's Jesus plus kind of idea, which is another zeal, and they're zealous without out knowledge. Again, that's, that's wrong too. That is not drawing near zealously according to knowledge. It, uh, again, is a tendency to minimize God's holiness and think somehow we can, we can attain it by adding to what Jesus has done somehow. He does part, we do part. And if the two parts add up to be enough, we can draw near. So people look to themselves, and uh, whether blatantly or in a more subtle way, I remember a number of years ago when one of you here in this church, in, in this sanctuary this morning, and I won't point you out, I won't make you stand up, I maybe used the illustration before, but I remember you, as you grew up and as you got older, you told me this. You told me that, that I had a kind of mentality about drawing near to God that went like this, that, that I would go to bed at night, confess my sin, and hope that I died before I woke up so that I could get to heaven. Now, that's an extreme way to say it, but you knew or you thought that if you woke up the next morning, you were going to be in trouble again because you got it all cleaned up at the end of the day and the only way you were going to make it because this mentality is somehow that responsibility and, and the basis of your drawing near was either you alone or Jesus and you. 
And I fear that that mentality, though most people won't say it like that, who are in it, is more prevalent oftentimes than we think. That's why it's so important as young people come up that we, we build a foundation of knowledge and understanding. Don't just, don't just say, come to Jesus. Tell them why. Tell them why. Give them a, a zeal and put a zeal in them according to knowledge. I have seen gatherings of young people where great zeal has been whipped up and there's been no gospel in it. There's been no gospel at all. It's just an admonition of get serious. Go all out. Get in there fully. Now, that doesn't work devoid of gospel. The thing that will cause that to happen is knowledge. But if you don't give them that, that's incredibly dangerous because they're deceived. And they begin to rest on their zeal. Void of Christ. And that's the ones that I think exactly what Paul was talking to in Romans about the Jewish people. They had zeal for God, but it was not according to knowledge. It was not according to Christ being at the center of that and understanding his work. And in fact, as we look at Hebrews, that's the danger of these people. The people that Hebrews is being written to were Jewish people. Jewish people who had embraced the gospel and had laid some of the foundation of that knowledge, but it was getting fuzzy in their head. And they were considering going back to Judaism and resting in their zeal and not on Christ. It is about Christ. And so let me tell you what the scriptures say. Let me just lay out to you again. And those particular connecting phrases are paramount in this. Because whenever you go through a text and it says and stops and says, therefore, you got to go back. If you're an English major, you know you got to go back and find out what that's tied to. If you're diagramming sentences, you got to go back and figure out what it's referring to. And it's referring to a couple of things, particularly in Hebrews chapter 10 that we talked about last week. The first place it lands, I think, is in verse 14. Verse 14, after he's laid a foundation of the fact that the, the Old Testament priest had to continually give sacrifice again and again because it couldn't fully take away sin. And then he points to Christ, who was gave the final sacrifice and the one sacrifice that in fact could take away sin. And then in verse 14 tells the result of that. He gave his self as the sacrifice and it was not ever to be repeated because this is what it accomplished. In verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now bear with me. If you are, have been here for a while, but you, you who haven't need to see this. You have seen it multiple times, but this is the righteousness of Christ. What that verse is saying to us is, this is if this represents Christ, if this represents his accomplishment, this represents what his sacrifice accomplished because he not only died without sin, he lived without sin, so he was a perfect sacrifice and attained a perfection. And what the gospel is about and what that verse is about is that that perfection that was his can be ours. Last week, if you remember, I said in order for us to get to heaven, the thing that troubles us most, the reason we don't draw before a holy God, if we don't understand the gospel, is we, we have an inherent understanding. We have to be perfect to do that. And the problem is we aren't. 
We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in order to enter the holiness of God without being consumed, you must be perfect. And so one came to accomplish a perfection, Christ. And that perfection he promises to give to us if we will look to him, if we will flee to him. He who had no sin became sin for us. He took the punishment. He accomplished a righteousness. And so, literally, if this were us, Christ, when we are in him, he covers us with his righteousness. He gives us his perfection. And when it says in this text, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time, it's talking about this. When he sees us who are in Christ, he sees the perfection of Christ and the accomplishment of Christ and the work of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, and he counts it as ours. That is the gospel, part of the gospel. That's the glorious part of the gospel that we can be perfect who are not perfect, can be seen as perfect. His righteousness is credited to be ours, his perfect righteousness. And at all the time, he is also doing something else. If this is us, he enters into our life in the person of the Holy Spirit and begins to do the second part of that verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who have his righteousness even as he is making them perfect, as he is perfecting them. Now, that, that doesn't get fully accomplished till glorification, till we die. You never can come to a point, and I've said it a multitudes of times, there's never a point that this gets good enough that you can come before him on the basis of this accomplishment and throw this off. You will never be able to do that. You can never throw this off. If you don't do it on the basis of the knowledge of his perfection being yours, you pervert the gospel. Never, never is it about how much this has been perfected. It is always on the basis of this. But because that is happening, because God is working in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure, on that basis we can know that we have been sanctified forever and that we have his righteousness. I hope this morning that you know that. I hope that that maybe is one of the verses that just burst out as you began to hear or read about the holiness of God this morning. That it just came to your mind. I'm I'm, I'm perfect forever. Even though I have sinned this week, I haven't lived fully for his glory. I'm perfect in Christ and I can draw near I can draw near to the holy place with full assurance based on his work and his accomplishment it goes on to say in that text therefore I think it refers back to it says I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more I will remember them no more what what does that mean you think about that a minute what how, how can God forget anything I don't believe he can in the sense of literally forgetting. That would, that, that isn't possible. So what does it mean? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I, I will not remember them 
in the sense that they will be held accountable for them. They will not come against them. I will not remember them in the sense that they have to be punished because they've already been punished in Christ. He took it. He took the punishment. To do it again would be double jeopardy. In fact, for Christ to do it again would show him to not be righteous, to not be the holy, holy, holy God that he is. We'll come back to that at the end. But in fact, the very, the very argument that he cannot overlook sin is also the argument that he can't cause it to be punished twice because of his holiness and his righteousness. Well, that's the therefores. Now it says in that text, in verse 21, sense, sense. It goes on. It just keeps building around us knowledge of why we can draw near. Since we have a great high priest. Um, Some of you, your eyes glazed over when we went through Hebrews and we started to talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is only talked about a couple of times in all of Scripture. And one of those is Hebrews. And, and you thought, what is Melchizedek about? How can I understand? What, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is that Jesus is an eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a different kind of priest in the Old Testament. He was a picture of a priest to come, not like the Old Testament priest that had to continually give sacrifice, but an eternal high priest who would live forever at the right hand of God. That's who we have You have an eternal high priest who has paid the penalty and is at the right hand of the Father, seated because the work is finished, interceding for you, praying for you, praying that you will persevere in righteousness, that you will not go back on your confession of faith if you've made it in Christ. And because he's doing it, it won't happen for those that are in Christ. But there's another place here that I think is a wonderful picture. It's a little earlier in this text. And you go to verse 20. It it also, I think, pertains to the sense idea, although it comes a bit before it. In verse 20, it says, um, I think we we could say it this way. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In verse 22, sense by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And a little earlier, it says we can enter the holy place by the blood. What is that talking about? One of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture is when Jesus gave up his spirit in the book of Matthew. The very moment that he gave up his spirit on the cross, yielded his spirit, the Scripture says, in Matthew, what happened in the temple? The curtain was rent from top to bottom. The curtain, what did the curtain represent? It represented the fact that we don't have access. And that that Old Testament people only had access through the high priest. Now, I believe there were Old Testament believers who, who believed that God was going to send something to provide a way, but they did not have the access we have. I think when we get to heaven one day, there are going to be Old Testament believers who looked ahead to a promise. There are going to be New Testament believers who look back to the cross. But Old Testament believers did not have one up on us. They did not have the access that we have. They had to go through 
the high priest. But one of the things that happened at the death of Christ was, no longer is that the way it is. That was only a picture. That was only pointing to the true reality, which is what Hebrews chapter 10 says when it says, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. The good things to come was when Christ yielded up his spirit, that picture became clear. That that curtain was rent in two. The very moment that his flesh... You see, the curtain was a picture of his flesh. When Christ's flesh was rent, so the curtain... He is our access. And He has provided access for us into the holy places. Are you starting to move from fear to being thrilled by the holiness of God? You see, that's the process. That's how it happens. You start to get knowledge underneath you that begins to help you to understand why you need to have a zeal for God, why you need to have a zeal for Christ and why you should and the motivation for it. Because that curtain was rent. And the scripture is true when it says we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us. He, Christ, through the curtain that is his flesh. Curtain represented his flesh, and that's why it was rent at that moment in the temple. So you come into the sanctuary this morning, and there's a voice in you, even though you have put your hope in Christ, that says, you can't draw near. What do you do? You think about this, promises like this, that the the curtain has been rent by Christ. My hope is in what he has done, not in my ability to make myself worthy to come. That's the gospel. That's gospel truth. It goes on to one other thing I want to say, and then we're going to close. Since, verse 22, let us, let us, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, we're going to have a baptismal service in a couple of weeks. And it talks about washing with pure water. I think that's just evidence of what already happened. What, what's going to happen two weeks from now is not the washing of the conscience. It's not the forgiveness of sins. It's just evidence of what's already happened. That's what I think baptism was, was an evidence of what's already occurred in the heart and a profession of what's already occurred in the heart. That my conscience has been cleansed, that evil accusing conscience that has been, has been silenced. Has been silenced, or at least I know a way to keep it silenced when it wants to speak again. And it's this knowledge of the truth. It's this knowledge. There's one more thing that it says here, and then I want to make an application and we're done. It, it says in verse... 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What does that mean? He's faithful. He's faithful to his promise. It goes back to the idea 
that just as God cannot overlook sin, he can't wink at sin, there had to be a punishment for sin, and his, his son took it for all who will look to him, just as he couldn't do that, he cannot punish the innocent as well. He cannot not punish the guilty, but he also would be unjust to punish the innocent. And if your sin was laid on Christ and he gave you his perfection in the eyes of God, you are perfect. You are innocent. And the very same argument that causes fear and terror to rise up in one because he has no one who has taken that punishment if he's outside of Christ is the same confidence that the one who is in Christ which leads to thrill. I hope within your heart this morning if you have put your hope in Christ there is a thrill rising up in your soul. You don't have to minimize who God is. In fact, you don't want to do that. You do not want to bring him down from being holy, holy, holy because if he's not that what is to say that he won't turn and say I was just joking. I really didn't mean it. Ha ha to you. You see, you don't want that kind of God. You don't want a a God who changes his mind. You don't want a God who is capricious. You want a God who you know, and you know him to be holy. And that holiness begins to thrill you. That was the progression in my life. That was the progression. And the thing that changed it for me from moving to terror to thrill was not denying the holiness of God, but fully embracing it and looking to the provision of his son. And you know, it's not a one-time event as they come to close this morning. It's not a one-time event. I'm wired in such a way that I have to fight a battle nearly every morning when I awaken. I'm not wired. I'm not wired in a way that says, when I wake up, God is for me. I I, I see my sin. I see my shortcomings. I see my shortcomings as a father. I see my shortcomings as a husband. I see my shortcomings as a pastor. And I'm prone to think of those shortcomings. And so what do I do? What do I do? I need to know some stuff. I need to know some stuff. I need to know some stuff. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 is so precious to me when it says, He has made perfect forever those whom He is making perfect. You see? And one day we'll fully make perfect when He glorifies us. He's made perfect forever those who are being sanctified, it says in the the ESV. So all the time as we rest in the holiness of God or the righteousness of Christ God is working in us and he's moving us but it is not on the basis of that that I can draw near. It's not the basis of that that I can come and preach to you this morning. It's not the basis that I had a perfect week that I can come and preach to you this morning. You try uh, it's not a pity party but you try being a pastor for a while. You try beating your head in the brokenness of the world and the pressures of life and then you have to come 
to a people and tell them to draw near to God. I better know how to do it myself. I better know how to do it myself. And I commend to you what I've just said is the way. I hope, I hope that you know what it is to draw near to a holy God. And this caveat as we close. True zeal. The zeal that will cause you to hunger for holiness and to hunger for God even as he is making you holy. That, that whole freedom comes in the gospel. The zeal. True zeal. Godly zeal. It flows out of that understanding and the degree to which you understand it and rest in the gospel will compare equally to the zeal you have for your God. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where you came in. But if you came in without being in Christ, if you came out with not have ever fleeing to Christ, never running to Him, and knowing that He has your sin and took the punishment for it, and He gives you His right. If you've never, if you've never done that, if the sting of your sin has never driven you to the Savior, maybe today's the day. And you will know what it is to move from terror to delight in the holiness of God. And if you're a believer today, maybe, maybe you're just not fighting the fight. Maybe you're listening to that evil conscience that you don't have to listen to anymore. He doesn't remember that sin and hold it against you. So why should you fight, Christian? Fight the fight of faith. Fight it every day. Fight it with promises. Fight it with Hebrews chapter 10. Begin there. And oh, what a difference it makes. We're going to sing. We're going to sing about the holiness of God as we began this morning. And I hope your heart rejoices in it. Let's sing together.
promise one more time. He has made perfect, and underline it, forever, those who are being sanctified or made perfect. Go in the strength of that promise you're dismissed this morning. God bless you.